Good morning, Restore. Happy almost end of August. I can tell who the parents are in the audience by who gave the loudest noise there. Uh, so welcome this morning. If you're visiting with us this morning, my name is Justin. I'm the pastor here. Uh, we are a brand new church that is launched here in the Goof, the Heights area, North Houston. Uh, and I just want to say welcome this morning. If you're joining us, uh, we are now actually finishing a series in the Psalms. Uh, so we've been exploring all summer long, what does it mean to have faith? So when I ask that question, like, what does it mean to have faith? What does that mean to you? Like, how does faith change you? How does faith uh, mold you? How has faith shaped you? How has faith cultivated you? One of the reasons I love the Psalms in particularly is because the Psalms are a beautiful picture of faith. They're a beautiful picture of the journey of faith, like what it means to have faith as we move through life. And I'm going to swing around here now so I can get my stand. And as we think about uh, moving through life, one of the things that I love about the Psalms is just the, the radically like authentic, real picture or posture that they offer. So if you read the Psalms, one of the things that's striking about it is that there's so many of the Psalms that you kind of read it and you're like, what is this doing in my Bible? Like, did God not have an editor before this made it in? Like, there's Psalms where, like, the psalmist is getting angry at God. There's a Psalm where the psalmist literally says, hey, God, would you leave me alone so I could smile again? And you're like, wow, that's a really honest piece of Bible right there. But what I love about the Psalms, that whole picture, is that it, I think it actually shows us what it means to have faith and then what it looks like for that faith to kind of carry us through life, right? Like all of the Psalms are, there's disillusionment, there's fear, there's anger, there's hurt, there's pain, there's frustration. But one of the beautiful things about the Psalms is when you arrive at the end, so there's 150 Psalms, so it's the largest book of the Bible, but when you arrive at the end of the Psalms, or at the end of your journey, the last five Psalms are nothing but praise. They're nothing but this like soul-settling contentment in who Jesus is. So I love that song, Jesus, you are my all and all. There's this moment when, as I've processed through all of the pain and the loneliness and the frustrating relationships of life, at the end of my journey, Jesus, you are my all and all. You're all that I need. You're beautiful. You're warm. You're compassionate. You're my true home. And that's what the journey of the Psalms does, is it, it helps us arrive at this space where we process through and navigate all of just the frustration and the disillusionment and the confusion of life and arrive at this space where we can look at Jesus and say, I'm home. I have everything that I need. You are all that I need. And so as we close our series out today, this psalm in particular is one of those last five psalms. Uh, so if you've got your Bibles with you, we're going to be uh, in Psalms 146, or it's going to be on the screen behind me here. Uh, so the words will be up here behind me. But this last psalm is going to be nothing but this like outpouring, like joyous praise to God of like somehow I've arrived at this moment. Life is like, it has not been easy, but I've arrived at this moment where God, you are good and I will praise you to my dying breath. And so what trust in God is, like what trust in God is to this psalmist and in this psalm uh, is faith. 
So, so faith and trust in God in your Old Testaments were really synonymous with one another. Those were used interchangeably. Uh, so trust, to trust in God was to have faith in God. And so the psalmist is going to essentially here express this outpouring of like, God, I trust you and it has brought me joy. It's brought me completeness. So I'm not, I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands, but like if we think of our faith journey and I think of my relationship with God, can we honestly say, like, there's this moment where, like, God, I'm just overwhelmed with joy. Like, I'm over, like, it's flowing out for me. Like, I have happiness. Because the reality is your Old Testament, in particular, equates faith with trust in God and happiness. These things are linked together. These are interchangeable, and the psalmist in particular will kind of flow through these things. My faith, my trust in you leads to my happiness and joy. Leads to me feeling complete and full and my soul feeling as if it's home. And so this morning, we've arrived at, like I said at the end, this, this psalm in particular is one of the last five psalms of the entire book of psalms. So 150 of these poems and songs are written. This is one of the last ones. And the psalmist is going to walk us through, essentially, how did they arrive at this place of overwhelming joy, this soul, what I call soul-settling contentment. So it's been, it's been a, a difficult year been a difficult season, right? The last two or three years have been hard for so many of us. I think one of the realities that I've just, as a new pastor, and I haven't been doing this very long, but one of the realities that's been very evident to me is just, I feel like we're a church of just burnt out and weary people. And that's okay, I'm not shaming anyone for that. I feel that weariness as well. But what, I, what I'm realizing, just like even as a pastor, as I walk with you guys through that, as I hear your hearts and hear some of the burdens that you've carried, like there's this sense of, I, I, like my words can offer very little, very little comfort. And so as I pray through this psalm, as I pray for like my heart, for us as a church, it's really this, that even in the midst of your weariness, right, because we can't make the last three years go away, in the midst of disappointment, in the midst of confusion, in the midst of pain, we'd find some soul-settling contentment, some stillness in our heart, so that we feel we don't have to run to all the things that we run to to numb out or escape. So some of those fears and some of those anxieties that we have, maybe those can quiet down just a little bit. As we fall to sleep at night, or maybe you're, I'm a night person, so I, I, I don't pray in the morning. I, like, I don't understand that. You guys that do that, I'm sorry. Like, I just, I'm not spiritual before. Like, I'm forced to be spiritual by 10 a.m. on Sundays, but like, uh, that's, that's my limit. Um, but whether it's at night or in the morning, whether you're closing the chapter of your day or getting ready to start your day, my prayer for us is like, I could just feel some sense of like soul-settling peace. I'll be okay. The world's still chaotic. Futures are uncertainty, economies are unpredictable, but there's something here that I just feel like has got me. I know I'm home, I know I'm seen, and I know I'm loved. And so as we, as we work our way through the psalm this morning, this is where the psalmist will end up. It's going to end up in this place of like, my dying breath, I'm going to praise you. So I want to I offer us this morning a little bit of journey, like how do we arrive 
at that space? How did the psalmist arrive at that space? And so I'm going to walk us through a little bit this morning. So just some of the psalmist's like honest thoughts and processes as they were walking through and working through this. So um, let, me, let me read it for us real quick. The words will be behind me on the screen, uh, and then we'll get started. Starting in verse 1. Praise the Lord. Let all that I am praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God with my dying breath. Don't put your confidence in powerful people. There is no help for you there. When they breathe their last, they return to the earth, and their plans die with them. But joyful are those who have the God of Jacob as their helper, whose hope is in the Lord their God. I made heaven and earth and the seas and everything in them. He keeps every promise. He keeps every promise forever. He gives justice to the oppressed and food to the hungry. The Lord frees the prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are weighed down. The Lord loves the godly. The Lord protects the foreigners among us. He cares for the orphans and the widows, but he frustrates the plans of the wicked. The Lord will reign forever. He will be your God, O Jerusalem, throughout the generations. Praise the Lord. Let me pray for us real quick and we'll get started. Father, this morning as we um, think about what it means to praise you, in our storms, and our dying breaths, and our powerless moments, and all the moments that we're out of control, or insecure, or afraid, or searching for you. Um, Father, would you be tender on us this morning? Can I just ask you, God, for mercy? Mercy for me, mercy for our people, mercy for us here. Jesus, we need a real encounter with you. Father, would you take us from being abstract intellectual ideas, things that we know, like facts that we know about you, And honestly, this morning, Jesus, can I ask that you would capture our hearts? That this morning we'd build affection for you. We'd long to praise you. That we'd find soul-settling contentment in you. Jesus, we love you. Would you show us how to love each other? We pray all of these things in your name. Amen. So, so the first thing that the psalmist does here uh, is they actually start linking um, praise in God, like trust in God, with their powerlessness. Now, it may not have been quite evident to us at first, um, but when the psalmist says right there in verse uh, 2, I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to, to my God with my dying breath. Okay, so, so that sounds a little bit like this is sort of this like religious, like I'm going to, like I'll never quit. But that acknowledgement of I will praise the Lord to my dying breath. In, in, in this world that the psalmist is writing, death was seen as the ultimate like factor in which humanity was not in control of. It was the moment in which no matter who you were, no matter how wealthy you are, who your family was, who your descendants were, everybody died. And so what the psalmist is acknowledging or saying here in this moment is, God, even in like my most powerless moments, and I have very little control over my life, I will learn to praise 
you. So when the psalmist says, I will praise you to my dying breath, what they're doing is they're actually acknowledging in some way their insignificance. No matter how much wealth I build, no matter how successful I am, no matter like what nation I'm a part of or who like I'm a descendant of, at some point I will die. I am out of control of my life. Even if I'm successful in every other area that my world and my culture has defined as being successful, there's going to be a moment where I realize I am no longer in control. I am actually relatively an insignificant part of the story as far as how the world turns. Now, hold on. We're not gonna, he's not going to stay with insignificance, and that's not where, like, I want to just preface that real quick. I said it's going to be a journey. We're going to arrive there. So I don't want us to walk away and be like, well, I just don't matter to the world anymore. Uh, that is not where I want us to go with this psalm. The psalmist is going to start with, here's my insignificance, but what we're going to arrive at at the end is the psalmist is saying, but look how significant I am to God. I am the beloved. And so there's this irony here. The psalmist starts with acknowledging actually how little control, how little power, how little ability they have to manage their life, death being the final representation of that. And yet, there's this realization at the end of this journey, I am beloved, I am seen, and I am known. What it starts actually with humility, right? So th this isn't like self-abasement. Like, this isn't like, oh, I just don't matter. I'm insignificant. Nothing matters that I do. What the psalmist is acknowledging is, I actually have very little control over my life. I do. I have very little control over my life. And some of the things that I would define as successful, turns out they've done very little to actually give me any sense of control. The things that I've used to define my worth, my value, my place in the world, turns out they've actually added very little to who I am, to God, and in my place in the world. And so when they arrive at this point, when we arrive at this space, I would call this space, by the way, humility. It's the moment at which we realize I am utterly and completely dependent on God. I need him for all that I have. So the psalmist will say next, uh, starting in verse uh, 3, don't put your confidence in powerful people. That can also be translated, don't put your confidence in princes. But I like this translation better, and I'll explain why. Um, I don't put your confidence in powerful people. There is no help for you there. When they breathe, they're last. And again, the psalmist is like, he's not being like, he's not being like super depressing and kind of like, just like, oh, everybody dies. Like, uh, that's not really his point. What his point is, is even the powerful people don't really offer the solutions that I'm looking for. Even the successful people don't give my soul what it's longing for. Uh, so, so moving on, uh, don't put your confidence in powerful people. There is no help there. When they breathe their last, they return to the earth and all their plans die with them. Okay, so, so this, by the way, for, for modern people in particular, this one's a tough one for us. Um, because we are wired, right, our culture in particular, we're Americans, there's a Western culture, we are wired to view our place in the world, our success, based on our output. How successful our children are, if you're parents, how successful your career is, if that's where you are, like, 
if you're a pastor, how successful your church is. Like success is wired into us as a culture in ways that I don't, we, we've bought into this in ways that I don't even think that we realize we have. And so one of the things the psalmist is doing here is he's challenging these ideas of like, I want to challenge what I view as successful here. Uh, so so Th- Thomas Hora is a psychologist, you don't, psychiatrist. If you don't know who that is, it doesn't matter. He was a prominent psychiatrist in the 20th century. Um, some of you millennials are like, why did you have to say it like that? I grew up in the 20th century. You Gen Z people are like, 20th century? What is that? I learned about that in history class. Um, 20th century psychiatrist. Uh, who was never a Christian, by the way, he wasn't a Christian, although he, 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 like, he realized, he got to, his journey was very interesting. He got to this point where he realized modern people uh, are, are inevitably setting themselves up for disappointment in their relationships. That's what he wrote. He said, modern people, by and large, the way Western culture is moving, like, relationships will be characterized by disillusionment, disappointment, and frustration. And the reason he said that is, We've bought into this idea that our relationships have to produce these desired results for us, this output. It's this consumeristic, like, mentality. We do it all the time, right? And, and again, this isn't necessarily, I'm not, like, this isn't necessarily sinful or wrong. It's just, like, the narrative in our culture that we've, we've probably adopted more than we realize, right? But, like, my dating advice to my child, and I'm going to give this advice to her, is, like, find someone who makes you, what? Happy. Find someone that produces for you the thing that you need. But what he began to realize is subtly what's happening there is humanity, like us as people, by and large, we've started to shift where we look to for the hope of our souls, like where we look to to feel okay about ourselves. And part of that shift is into relationships, work relationships, romantic relationships, friendships. And so this was kind of early on in the 20th century. He was predicting at some point, I think we're going to have an entire society of people that by and large feel overwhelmingly disappointed with their friendships and their relationships and their marriages. He's expressing and wrestling with the same exact thing this psalmist is saying here. I have learned to put my faith in powerful people. Right, so us modern people, like none of you walked in, was like, my faith is in princes this morning. Uh, Like, that wasn't you. But chances are good, there's some part of you that looks to someone else or something else as the thing that will deliver you. This is the sentiment that the psalmist is expressing. When I look elsewhere, no matter where I look, I somehow end up in a place of feeling frustrated and discontent and let down. So oddly enough, so my, my former career, was, I was a counselor, I was a clinician before I became a pastor. Uh, and what's interesting is now we are starting to see studies that are coming out. And actually, you may not realize this, but this generation particularly, they believe, is the loneliest generation that's ever been in existence in our country in particular. Like there's actual research and facts now that are starting to support some of this. What Hora was predicting And it's because, by and large, we've adopted this mindset of, like, looking to production, what produces, in order to find significance, in order to find value. And it's left us feeling very disillusioned and frustrated with the world. It's the same thing the psalmist is saying here. Why put your faith in powerful people? Why put your confidence there? There is no help. 
for you there. We do this with our spouses. We'll do this with our friendships. We'll do this with our relationships. We'll do this at work. We do this with everything. We're wired to do this. I'm not shaming any of us for this. The psalmist isn't like, so sinful me. They're just arriving at this place of, actually, I keep, I keep elevating things without realizing I'm doing it. Powerful people. And all that we end up doing is when we make people more powerful than they are, they end up letting us down. This is, I think, actually by and large in our country, uh, in our culture particularly, there's a narrative like the older you get, the grumpier you should be, right? Some of you are like, oh, that's my grandpa. Uh, right? Like, and I've started to feel it too. Like, I'm not even, I'm not that old. Uh, I know I've made references to the 20th century where I grew up and learned to listen to music. Um, that was my quip that all music right now is awful. Um, sorry. Um, some of y'all, that's the most I've ever seen y'all engaged in a sermon. Some of y'all are clapping. That's the most amen I've ever gotten from you guys. Clearly, I'm not alone in that. But, the, but there's this narrative in our culture that the older you get, the grumpier you should be, right? Like, the older you get, the more disillusioned you should be with everybody, the more frustrated you should be with everybody. And to be honest, I think that narrative doesn't have to be true for you. Can I just go a step farther and say, just as a pastor, I don't want that narrative to be true to you, true for you. Like, the older you get, I don't want more bitterness, more resentment, and more grumpiness to set in because everybody else keeps letting you down. There's actually a different way with Jesus, a way that softens our hearts, a way that builds affection for us, even as people frustrate us or let us down or the sources at which we look to for life don't provide. Like, there's a way to act. Like, disillusionment and bitterness doesn't have to be, like, the natural outworking, like, chat, like story of your life. God wants more for you than that. He's built you for more than that. So, so one, of my, um, one of my favorite pastors, Eugene Peterson, he translated the Message Bible. Maybe some of y'all are familiar with that. Uh, he, just, he recently passed, and they wrote his biography and his autobiography, and I ended up reading both of them. Um, but what, what was interesting is at the beginning of his, his career as a pastor, uh, he had an artist who was like, I want to paint you as a pastor, uh, but I want to paint you as a pastor that you'll be 30 years after you've been in the ministry. He was kind of intrigued by that idea. He was like, okay, I like that idea. I like this is before apps could do the aging for you, I guess, right? <laughs> and so he sat down and, like, had the guy paint, and he was pretty excited to see, like, what, I don't know, a wise old Eugene Peterson pastor might look like. But when he finally saw the painting, he was, he was shocked. The guy showed him the painting, and in a, on his face was this, he was cold. The eyes, like, his eyes looked like he had no soul left. He looked stern. He was holding a Bible. No smile on his face, no warmth left. And he's like, well, I just posed for you for hours. Like, what was that for? And he said, I'm painting you the way that I think most pastors, after they spend most of their life with people, look and become. Um, that's not how I'm looking with y'all, uh, by the way. Now, I do have great hair in my beard now, but that's not y'all's fault. Um, this narrative that, like, the more exposure I have to others, the more exposure I have to people, the more disillusioned and grumpy and bitter I have to be doesn't have to be the narrative here. Okay. So, so what does all this mean? But you're like, well, I'm not supposed to put my faith in people. Here's what Thomas Horace, the, the psychiatrist I mentioned, would often describe this as. He said, we, we come in with this mentality with most of the things in our lives we look for value and worth. 
the success of our children, the success of our marriages, the success of our careers, and it's like two fingers that are interlocking with one another. And you can only go so far. You can only go so, like, you can only be enriched to some point, and then you can't anymore. The problem is, like, we keep trying and trying and trying. And so what he predicted was most of our lives as modern people is going to feel like we're just wiggling in the same amount of room, trying to find worth and value in the same spaces, but our fingers are too tightly interlocked to ever let go. And so he said most of our lives we're going to be just kind of rubbing back and forth, trying to find space to matter, find space to be significant, find space to feel loved, find space to see God. And instead, as we keep searching and searching and searching, we're just going to keep frustrated because like, we're going to keep looking to our spouses and our careers to do what only God can provide for us. And so the psalmist, this is, by the way, um, exactly where the psalmist goes next, verse 5. But the joyful are those who have the God of Jacob as their helper. Okay. So, so this, this might sound, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to unpack this phrase just a little bit for us. This, this, this might sound like when he says the God of Jacob, what he's saying is, is an indication of who Jacob worshipped. That is true, Jacob worshipped God, but the God of Jacob is a title that I want to unpack for us a little bit because it's extremely significant. And if you were an ancient person reading this, you would have heard the term God of Jacob, and you would have been like, who? The God of who? So, so who is Thor? The God of, I'm forgetting now, lightning, right? Thunder, lightning, right? Powerful, right? Mighty. I had to, like, I had to think of gods that you guys might know, and there was only two, like Thor and Loki were the only two. I, right, Loki, the god of mischief, right? But so much in the ancient world, the gods, like who they were the god of, was representation of their might, their strength. What is Thor always saying? I am mighty, god of thunder, Right? All throughout the Old Testament, you had gods of the weather, you had gods of war, you had gods of big things, gods of the sun, gods of the earth, gods of the wind, strong things. These things, whatever the god was of, was an indication of, of, of how, like what that god belonged to, and it was an indication of that god's power. So when your psalmist says, my hope is the god of Jacob it gives us a little bit of a pause. Here's why. If you know anything about the life of Jacob, uh, and if you don't, by the way, like if you're not as familiar with your Bible, I want to say first off, like I'm so glad that you're here. Like I want to be a safe space for us to explore these stories, wrestle with them. Like there's so much in there. It can be very confusing. But Jacob was one of these guys in the Old Testament uh, who spent most of his life being manipulative uh, and conniving and scheming. He ostracized most of the people he was close with, Right? He pulled a scheme over on his brother and his father, which ended up him having to run away and never see his mother again, which is, by the way, the only person in his life that ever loved him uh, in the entire narrative, other than God. Like, he, like, took, like, left, like, wrong turn after wrong turn after wrong turn is how Jacob's life is recorded. Now do you see the significance when the psalmist says, the God of Jacob, the God who belonged to that kind of person. Gives you pause for a second. So the God of Jacob, what it's saying there, again, that, like this particular phrasing doesn't mean that Jacob worshiped God, although that is true. The God of Jacob, what they're saying is God belongs to Jacob. 
Thor is the god of thunder. That's how he fights bad guys, right? With lightning and thunder. Your God, he changes the world through you. This is how God chooses to associate himself. The God of messy people. The God of manipulative people. The God of insecure people. The God of people with broken relationships, family relationships that just never seem to reconcile. That's the God that the psalmist is beginning to appeal to here. And what's happening here, and I want to I push us here just a little bit. I'm going to ask us to do something, not out loud, but something that I, I want to push us just being comfortable here for a second. Like when you think of God, right, we often pray like, God, help me, or God, Father, we call him Father. What would it look like? Just like right now in your own mind, if you just said the God of your name, the God of Justin, and all of the mess that Justin is, right? That's how God chooses to move. That's how God chooses to make people significant. That's how God redeems and restores the world through characters like Jacob through characters like you, with all of your broken relationships, all your mistakes, all of your addictions, all the things about you you wish you could change. You see, the psalmist writes here, too, by the way, it's not that God isn't a God of everything else. He made heaven and earth, the sea, and everything in them. He keeps every promise forever. But here, here's the thing. He's the God of Jacob. <laughs> this guy who could hardly ever get his life straight. That's who he's the God of. And so when he says he keeps his promises forever, he's alluding to, so you may not realize this, but Jacob, this guy who spent most of his life making big mistakes, was also the guy that God promised, through you I'm going to bless all nations of the world. Abraham was Jacob's grandfather. And he went to Abraham and said, I'm going to bless you through all the people of the world. You are going to be a blessing to all of humanity because of what I'm going to do through you, God of Abraham, God of Jacob. Jacob is a direct descendant of Jesus. That promise that God said, I'm going to make something beautiful out of you and your life and your world, I'm going to make you far more significant than you realize, starts with you realizing how much you need me, right? How little you actually can, like how much you are dependent on me in total need. But just as I made this promise to bless all people through you, I'm going to bless all people through you, Jacob. Because, listen to this, I belong to you. This is, this is weird. Um, and I think even as modern people, ancient people would have been like, this is, this is really odd. Like, this, this, is, this isn't how gods think or function or act. They don't have this kind of humility. They don't associate themselves. And they certainly don't associate themselves with lowly people. If you were a pharaoh or a Caesar, you might have got your own deity. But, like, you certainly, if you were Jacob, somebody that wandered the land with no name to his, to his anything, you didn't get God's. And then the God comes and says, you're mine now, but I'm also yours. That title is possessive. It's an indication of who God belongs to, God of Jacob. And this promise that I have to use your family and all of y'all's messiness to bless all of the nations, I'm going to keep it. So 
So as the psalmist works their way through finding significance here, finding this soul-settling contentment, they start out by acknowledging, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty needy. <laughs> Moment, like, I'm going to die. So, like, there's so much in my life I'm out of control of. And yet, if I look to the God who does big things with needy people, like Jacob, who doesn't quit on those kinds of promises, who doesn't quit on you, doesn't quit on me, maybe, just maybe, I can find this, like, in my heart and in my soul, this kind of praise that I long to offer to God. This is, by the way, I think the only way that you actually protect your heart from bitterness and resentment and disillusionment from setting in, from all the just relationships. I learned this, um, have been learning this. I haven't learned it. I am learning it readily. I'm like, I'm like Henry Nouwen, who's one of my favorite authors. He says, usually by the time I've gone to breakfast, I've had 20 thoughts about 20 different people who I think should be just a little different than they are. <laughs> Some of you are like, only 20? Uh, that's pretty good. That's on a good day. Um, you see, this is the only way. This is the only path to soul-settling contentment for you. Like Where bitterness and resentment and anger doesn't set in. It's acknowledging this need that you have acknowledging your vulnerability, acknowledging your messiness, and realizing that God of Jacob is mine. God of, and again, I'm not asking you to do it out loud, but like say your name. God of, like, does that sound weird to hear your name and God's name in the same sentence like that? Maybe it does. And if it does, I think it's because you haven't quite grasped the love that God, like the overwhelming love that God has for you. Like the overwhelming humility in which God will chase and seek after you and use you. And we get to that place when we realize we have no control. Um, You know, one of the ways that I've learned this very evidently is by being a parent. Um, So yesterday I had a dinner party with an elephant, two rabbits, (laughs) and a caterpillar, um, and Elsa from Frozen. Some of y'all are looking really confused at that analogy. They were stuffed animals, all right? So we're like, how did he get the elephant inside? Uh, They were all stuffed animals. My daughter and I had a little dinner party. Um, you know, you guys know my daughter. She's one of my greatest joys. But one of the things that you may not know about me uh, is I resisted having kids for a long time. It's one of the reasons that we had kids later in life. Um, because I was diagnosed with OCD early on. Uh, it's something that m- m- a couple times in my life, it's brought me to the point of suicide. And there was this fear of, like, I don't want to pass this on to my li- like, kid. I don't, I don't know what will happen if I let go of control. And so for many, many years, just held on real tightly of like, I can't guarantee anything here, so I'm not going to move forward. And I can just tell you right now, learning how little control you have, one over a two-year-old, but just over your life in general, the only way we get to a space where we actually can open ourselves up to relationships and love and dinner parties with elephants is by accepting we have very little control. But, but, right, so it's not just that, right? Because then we just end up in nihilism, right? Just uh, nothing matters, we can't do anything, nothing changes. We just end up uh, back at square one. We have to go to this God of Jacob who loves me and loves messy people doesn't quit, and doesn't give up his promises. 
when that happens, when we can acknowledge our need before God of, I, I don't have control over this. I'm utterly, completely uh, dependent on your goodness right here, God. Don't forget to come through to me, God of Justin, God of Jacob. When we get to that space, when our hands are open, like this is very different than, than Hora's prediction of like, we're going to spend our lives like this. Because what happens is we can actually receive God's goodness open-handed, and when that happens, we can actually have it readily available, both as access to us, but then also the others in our lives. But this is why, like, posture, like, sometimes when I do pray, like, I open my hands, like, just, not because I'm trying to be super spiritual, but, like, it just it reminds my, like, soul of, like, I'm in a posture of need before you. I mean, yeah, I've got a list of things, like, and trust me, I'm not that spiritual, right? It's, most of my prayers start off like, God, why don't you fix this person? Why does this person behave that way? Why don't this happen? Why don't you do that? Like, most of my prayers, at least for the first 10 minutes, are usually me complaining to God about my life. But if I can get through that, if I can kind of work through that piece, and I can settle in the space of God of Jacob, God of Justin, I'm dependent on your goodness here. I want to praise you with my dying. I want to praise you in the moments that I feel out of control with my life, which is really all of my life, by the way. If I can get to that space, like if just it frees our hearts, it frees our souls, it frees us up to actually be able to offer like God's goodness to the other people in our lives. And posturing this way is so much better than this, which is the way our culture is wiring us to posture our hands. You see, and so ironically, like full circle here, this, this idea of praising God and all that we have starts with, with acknowledging insignificance, but then ends with this incredible significance. So the psalmist finishes here uh, in verse 7. He gives justice to the oppressed, food to the hungry. The Lord frees his prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind, lifts those who are weighed down. The Lord loves the godly and protects the foreigners among us. He cares for the orphans and the widows. Here's where we'll close today. In the process of which we recognize our insignificance, here's the thing. We, re- we know 2,000 years later through Jesus that we're the hands and feet of God. Right? The church is the body of Christ. They're not just being religious and metaphorical. They are saying you are the active, living, redeeming, restorative, like good presence of God to the people around you. Like you are now brought into this privileged, significant space where you are the love of God to your children, your spouse, your family, your church, your work, your other coworkers, your classmates, like whoever you are. Like you are the goodness of God. And so we arrive at this space, at the, like we start the psalm by saying, I'm really insignificant and out of control in my life. In full circle, we end in the space of saying, I'm the goodness of God to the people around me. Again, I want to I push this just a little bit, like, but how many of our days do we wake up and say, I'm the hands and feet of Christ. I am the goodness of God today. To my children, to my spouse, to that coworker that's struggling in their marriage that friend I know that's been battling an addiction, that family member I know that just won't, like, get their act together. Like, I am the goodness of God to them. I'm the hands and the feet of Christ. And so full journey, we arrive at this space 
where we feed the orphan and the widow. We fight for justice. We fight for our neighbors. Like, we love them unconditionally and compassionately. Like, this is, like, this, this whole narrative here at the end is something that God does that we now actively participate in because of who Jesus is. This becomes part of our story. If we can posture ourselves with open hands. And so I, I love the way that the psalmist finishes. The Lord will reign forever. He will be your God, O Jerusalem. Your God, O Jerusalem. Throughout the generations. No matter how many Jacobs are in your family line. Throughout the generations, he will be your God. He will fulfill your promises. Praise the Lord. This is how the psalmist gets to this praise, this welling up of goodness. I need you. I'm insignificant. But through your goodness and your mercy and your love and your compassion to me, like as I stand here with open hands, my place in the world begins to change. And I go from being just dust to being the presence of the loving, living God in the lives of the people around me. So, so we have a saying around here. I like to say that God is a friend who often speaks to us through our friends. Think about that for a second. Like, your friendship with each other, by the way, like us as a church, and we'll talk more about this as we build our culture for small groups for the fall, but you are a friend to other people in this room who God may speak to. You may be an indication of someone's need or for friendship with God. It's the most sacred privilege in the world. And it starts with us recognizing our need for him. Let me pray for us, and, and we'll finish for today. Father, um, we love you. We need you. Um, God, for those of us here this morning who, um, I don't know, are, are exploring you or checking you out, um, Father, would you, be, would you be good to us? Would you have some mercy on us this morning? Would you reveal yourself in new kinds of ways? Um, but Father, would you help us to trust you? Would you help us to look for our significance only in you? Not in our relationships, not in our spouses even. Or in parental approval. Or in acknowledgement or recognition from our boss. All, all those things are good things and beautiful things and right things and should happen. But, um, Father, if we, we keep looking to them, they're just going to leave us dry and disappointed and then possibly grumpy and old and bitter. We don't want that, Father. Um, we want your affection. We want your warmth. Jesus, we want you to be our home. Would you show us how to, how to rest in you as our home? We need you. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen.